Accuracy is proud to be a supporter of ASIO's podcast series. With insightful presenters and expansive subjects, the podcast series is a must if you want to keep at the forefront of the industry. Security. Security workforce management software reimagined. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the ASIO Security Insider podcast. And our guest today is Vlado Damjanovsky, CCTV uh, expert and industry guru extraordinaire. Vlado's been the uh, the leading thinker in the CCTV space for, oh, Vlado, how many years is it now? <laughs> 35 plus. Wow. Well, welcome to the show, you know, first of all. 35 Sorry? plus. Now, you've uh, just summarised briefly for us, if you can, some of the things that you've been involved in and the achievements that you've uh, you've managed to get across the line from international standards to books and other bits and pieces so people know who we're talking to. Mm, yeah, for sure. I mean, it's too long even for myself to remember, but <laughs> I, I have obviously a bachelor degree in electronics engineering, which is where it all started, and uh, specializing in cameras. So I did uh, CCD chips in 1981 as a thesis for my uh, bachelor degree. And since then, I actually worked back in Macedonia, where I come from. I worked in a CCTV uh, company where we designed, manufactured uh, cameras and monitors. Now, at that time, obviously, tube. So I came to Australia in 87. Um, I did have some other projects back in Macedonia, including broadcast television. So my first job in Australia was actually in Channel 9. So I was as a broadcast engineer. But very soon after that, people saw that I have been involved in CCTV and designing cameras and so forth. So I started uh, first in Waymark, a company called Waymark, which was in Sydney, um, as a maintenance service manager or things like that. Uh, basically getting back to CCTV from the broadcast, uh, let's say, first position. And soon after that, people actually saw that I could explain and solve problems reasonably easy for what was for me easy for them was difficult to understand how, how did you solve this problem like we had uh, one of the interesting uh, project that i actually started on even before joined vaymark was the brisbane expo 88 yep and many companies apparently have tried at that time to get the system at the american pavilion going and uh, the manager that was supposed to be my manager. So I like spoke with him on Thursday before that. He said, would you like to go to Queensland and, and make a system working? He said, what system? Uh, uh, we put something there and it does, it's not working. And, you know, it's a special expo pavilion. So you have to work at night when nobody's there, blah, blah, blah. And it's a very important one. It's the American pavilion. I said, but I have no idea what it is. Here's a bunch of uh, manuals and books read it in the plane and report from there. <laughs> so I actually proved myself that without any assistance, I figured out how the system was supposed to be connected, but wasn't. Uh, many apparently installation companies tried to resolve the problem, but they couldn't. And basically overnight, I stay all night, I fixed the problem, the system was working. I remember it was Ernitech uh, matrix switch at that time, which was one of the predecessors of Pelco and Maxpro and so forth. So there was a little programming there, electronic communications, whatever. But it went okay. So I said, look, I, I, I'm okay. I'm done. And I'm flying back to Sydney. What do you mean you're done? Well, the system is now okay and working. Are you sure? Well, yes, because the 
explain to the manager and everything and it, stay there another few days and enjoy the expo. Yeah. <laughs> so that's how I started basically. So that actually brought to, uh, you know, uh, a little bit of a, a chip on the shoulder, so to speak. Uh, uh, well, Vlado can explain this. Hey, Vlado, come and explain how these systems are working. And of course, for me, being electronic engineer, working on cameras, television, everything, principles are the basics. So soon after that, people actually started talking, hey, Vlado can explain these things. And that's how we started with uh, uh, Jan Kapatka, if you remember. This is yep. a, a gentleman that we crossed paths uh, once uh, or twice before he actually approached me and said, look, I'll organize venues for training you prepare material and come and train the people. So this was starting 91 maybe or something like that, 92. So soon after that, basically I developed so much work uh, in terms of writing. At that time, there were no PowerPoint presentations and so forth. It was more overhead projectors, but I always had inclination for drawings and explaining things in a simplified way, which is I believe still my my strength and I want to nurture that that approach so I don't complicate things but I downgrade to the simplest thing understandable for any layman term they don't have to have bachelor degree or anything to understand how things are explained and that soon led to the first book uh, because I, I collected quite a lot of material for that and we parted ways with Jan. Jan decided to go to the US uh, with his training, I said, look, I'm going to write a book on CCTV. <laughs> and that was the basis for the first book, which came out in uh, 94, 95, somewhere like that. Excellent. So, so after that, everything yeah. becomes as a result of it, I guess. So yeah. certainly hands-on always were very important for me. So I was involved in many projects as a consultant, a consulting for Attorney General Darling Harbour Casinos, one of the first digital systems uh, in the world, basically, or probably you can say the second uh, after the Crown Casino was Star Casino in 1997. This is the time when everybody still used VHS and SVHS and nobody believed you could do that with digital. So I did consultancy for Star Casino. After that, another couple of projects, then big ideas started coming up. Okay, I'm, I'm going to do a magazine which you probably remember, CCTV Focus. Yes, I do remember. Uh, so I thought that was a missing piece in the industry. Like, uh, with all the respect, there was something like Security Electronics Magazine at that time, even though I think John and Monique were working for another magazine company. I forgot what was the name, but there was nothing specific for CCTV. So started on developing a magazine just for CCTV, which was supposed to be... Uh, um, mailed internationally, which is what we did. So we printed it in Sydney, we sent it throughout the world and blah, blah, blah. So all these things actually led to always craving for more information, new technology, which actually then converted to, okay, here's time for another book. So it's a time for another book. So, you know, today being 2022, I think most people would remember the very first book, which came 94, 95, that is the white one, they call it, the white book. Then 99, when we actually just started the magazine, CCTV Focus, Elsevier or Butterworth Heinemann publisher from the US at that time, launched the book at the IC show in New York, New, uh, IC East. Uh, 
then during that time, I was working hard on the magazine, but also preparing the, the technology came to be digital. Until then, almost everything was analog, right? Even though it was yeah. solid state cameras, but everything was still analog. But because I already did the casino, Star Casino 97, so I knew everything would go there. And of course, the, the television broadcast went high definition at the end, beginning of 21st century. So I continued developing uh, the magazine, but I saw the need for book update, which came 2005. So that was American's second book, uh, my third. And 2005, that was launched in Las Vegas, ISC Show West. Uh, after that, I did continue a little bit with the magazine, but uh, to be honest, you probably know, it's, it's, it's a very tough thing to do it all by yourself, which really what was I, I was doing, editing, publishing, um, you know, did test drive uh, articles. Of course, I invited people to contribute, but too much work was like literally, literally uh, without exaggeration, 12 to 15 hours a day, seven days a week, literally. Yeah. And that wears you out. So it, I eventually decided to stop. And after that, it came up a couple of opportunities for some projects. I still contracted a few companies. But the publisher said, Vlado, we need new book. People are asking for now digital technology, high definition. Okay, so 2013 <laughs> was the previous now uh, last edition until this one came out. So basically, that's, that's where we sit in the evolution of, let's say, <clears throat> being involved in, in books and magazines. And so... Good segue into talking about the reason we're here today, and that is the launch of the the fourth iteration of your book, which is titled "Pixels from Light to Everything." Is that correct? Uh, uh, from light, from light to intelligent pixels. Oh, to intelligent. The previous pixels. one yep. I had subtitled "From Light to Pixels," but now because because we're introducing intelligence, AI, video analytics, I decided to call it "From Light to Intelligent Pixels." And so give us a, an overview of what's changed in this version of the book. Yeah, that's a obviously good point and it's important for people that are interested to get it. Uh, for start, let's just say that there is nearly, what, nine years since the previous edition. Uh, and in the previous last edition, uh, I did not cover much about video analytics and intelligence because that was only starting right then. So 2011, 12, we're just starting to pick up on intelligent things. So um, I, I was aware that eventually that will need to be covered. And uh, quite honest, I decided, no, I'm not going to do books anymore. It's just too much because it's a lot of work. Let's put yep. it that way. And uh, if people think, you know, you get rich from writing books, no, definitely not technical books. Yeah. But yep. it was kind of, okay, you're building on something that you already done. So it's kind of, um, uh, important for me personally as a contributor to the industry. But what happened is somewhere uh, before COVID, a few years before COVID, uh, as, I, as I go around the world and do trainings and seminars based on my books, um, which were going quite well before COVID, COVID stuffed everything up in that regards, but still <laughs> Singapore was a good customer of mine, Singapore security industry. And I've been doing there for three or four years, every year, something uh, additional. And, you know, they, they, they really are very, very well organized with calling a large audience and, 
the government supports the uh, additional education. So everything is paid for in a way and they pay for all my expenses. So they're the ones that ask, Vlado, can, can you do a training on AI in video analytics? And of course we were involved with Oli and Oli is still involved in the 62676 standards, which actually develops dash six uh, version of the standards, which includes video analytics. And I said, yeah, sure, we can do it because that's really needed. So I sat down for maybe half a year, went through all the, let's say, theories behind and the reasoning behind. I mean, of course, I understand what it is. Everybody understands what it is. But the question for me was like everybody else, why suddenly this is picking up now? Why didn't pick up 20 years ago? And then when, when you go through all that, it becomes clear that that is because of the evolution of the fast processes, the programming, the, the things that are actually evolved only in the last 10 years, let's say, no more. Give me an so example outside of, get, sorry to interrupt, but I was going to say, give me sure. an example of some of the, the things that have brought that to the bear, because we understand that we have faster graphics processing units or GPUs and accelerators now, but what are some of the other contributing factors to, in your view, the sudden and that's explosive a, growth of deep learning and AI. Yes, that, that's a very, very good question because it's actually, you get to the core of it. And the core of it is actually uh, universities. There is uh, typically American, but also other universities around the world uh, have developed competition uh, for, let's say, uh, robot games or something that will make the code to uh, drive a robot with limited processing power to do certain things to win over another robot, whether it's robot in the form of, of a little toy skeleton or a, a, a car or whatever, uh, more uh, uh, people, more students started developing algorithms that are kind of uh, more intelligent. And because the processing power uh, has gone dramatically uh, in the last 10 years, high GPUs, NVIDIAs, and all the sort of uh, brand names that we know, suddenly people realized that if you do algorithm that is based on neural networking as a human brain uh, network works, if you can copy that uh, strategic segregation of parts of the image until you come to the core of it, so a face basically is represented with kind of vectors if you want. So in other words, instead of having full detail of that, it will decode, it will find where the eyes are positioning, right? So it's actually like a little digital imprint of something quickly once you do that then you can say okay this is a person looks like vlado or you can give it a direction uh, to go to the right because if it goes to the other side it may be uh, you know uh, traffic light red or something so the the actual uh, comp competing game students have come to a, a realization that deep neural uh, networking are having a, a, a let's say future in uh, deciding on certain things. And uh, basically 2012, I've got all this in the new book. Like actually I, I, I give reference and credit to people that were involved. There is a um, Chinese lady that is actually at one of the universities over there, I think Stanford or something that actually is uh, very important in this. Uh, and I, I, put, I have put her picture as well. She is the one that started all this development because there was a, a grant from the from the government to, to develop all these things. And the point is that people realize that because now the processing is faster, uh, you actually can put an algorithm that can extract details from something very quickly. So you then start 
modeling or learning the algorithm, uh, let's say you teach the algorithm what are cats, what does cat look like, what are dogs, what are human, what is face, what is car, and uh, first you go through the initial teaching inference so-called uh, process, which takes time and takes a lot of number crunching, which is where GPU are important, but at the end it comes up with something small, you don't have to have the whole algorithm to, to teach, you just have the result of that and then you put in the in a system. So if you want to do the same analysis, face recognition or number per recognition or even speech recognition, you do it much faster because somebody trained that algorithm with many examples that they collected uh, over the period of teaching or, or inferring. So the reason why this is now possible is because as you said, Processes are much faster, electronics is cheaper, but the algorithms to do that have been, let's say, invented and perfected in the past 10 years. No more than that, even though you can say AI is since 1950s as a concept, artificial intelligence, yeah. but it is now we can do it efficiently. It is now that we can do so many intelligent things. And that called for this training I mentioned, yeah. and that called for me, okay, well, really, need to put a book that will include that chapter. So that was the ultimate, let's say, reason behind it. So there's a million questions we could go into that I'd love to go into, but we don't have time for around, you know, sure. AI and its role in CCTV and where you see it going. But one of the things I would like to delve into is based on your experience and your years of working on large-scale CCTV projects and writing books and all the rest of it, what are some of the common mistakes that you see even the most seasoned consultants making with CCTV systems? Um, that's a, probably a question of many answers, most common. Okay, my experience based on my trainings and seeing what people know or don't know, um, I'm not going to say it is the algorithm that might be wrong or right and you don't know about that. Every algorithm is always evolving to be better. None of them is 100%. It cannot be. Uh, I guess the most, and com most common errors are at the very beginning, understanding what is required by the video system, by the VMS at the end of the day. Is that like an operator that needs to make a decision? Uh, is it a proactive system, like somebody sits there 24-7, shifts and so forth? Or it is a system which you decide upon event after the uh, recording reactive system. But all of this, including AI, all of them will depend on the best possible input from the camera point of view. So now when you start disassembling that entity as a camera, it's not just a sensor. It's obviously the optics, is the quality of the optics, is the quality of the sensor. And for us specifically in CCTV, we also add compression inside the camera, which is not necessarily the case in broadcast or let's say cinematography. They actually don't have to compress lossy compression in the camera. We have to, because we have hundreds of cameras in a project. We wanna put on a network and we wanna basically record I don't know, 30 days or whatever is required. So we have to compress. Now the result of, uh, let's say, inferior optics or a sensor that you do not understand uh, what are the details that the sensor gets in terms of daytime, nighttime, 
also the compression artifacts, which are actually higher or lower than what you need. Um, at the end comes down to my favorite topics, which is pixel densities. And pixel density is something we've dwelled for quite some time, and that is included in the new book because it's included in the new standards where I also, uh, as you know, and people know contributed. Because if people understand the pixel density, then it gives you open, let's say, field to design any kind of system and understand that any camera, any lens can be made to be suitable for what you need, but it cannot be made to have the widest angle of view and cover everything, and at the same time have the best picture and the highest, uh, best details for what you want to analyze. So it's always a compromise that installers or designers need to learn so that you say, okay, here, if you want to do this to the customer, if you want to do this, you will need minimum five cameras, let's say, not one like you well, thought. Well, hang on a because second. Before, this we, of this bef event. before we move on to that, right, here's my challenge mm. for you, okay? Can you explain pixel density in a few minutes to me on the understanding that I am a moron and know nothing? <laughs> no, you... you. <laughs> Well, let's just I, go I with would, that assumption. I'm sure plenty of people yeah, listening yeah, to this yeah, okay. will be comfortable with okay. that. Okay. Well, yeah. I mean, I think I can. Um, pixel density is basically the image of what you see at particular distance. The clarity and the detail you see of the object at certain distance, which is defined with pixel density. So in other words, you can use one camera to see, I don't know, 10 meters wide at 10 meters distance. And the person sitting at that 10 meter distance, you will see it on the picture, but it will be, I don't know, let's say it will be 170 uh, pixels high. Uh, why I'm saying 170? Well, if that person had 1.70 centimeters height, that means his reflection in the camera will be 100, pixels per meter. Because if he is 170 centimeters tall and he's reflected in 170 pixels, roughly it will be 100 pixels per meter. Now, if in your mind, when you see 170 pixels, if you do anything to do with video, you will see, well, that's not really so sufficient for me to be 100% sure this is Vlado or John, right? So you'll need a bit more. In other words, you need either close up. So in other words, Telephoto lens, if you don't want to move the camera closer, you can't move the camera, then you put a, like a telephoto lens that will take a narrow view that those 170 pixels height of that person, which is 1.7 meter tall, uh, suddenly instead of 170 becomes 340, for example, which means you've come twice close with the view. You haven't moved the camera if you change the lens. And that means you suddenly have 340 pixels per meter for that particular view. That will be the easiest uh, explanation. So the key now is to understand this pixel density refers for all objects, for everything, not just for human recognition. And this is where in the standard we did not really, was not even requested to be disclosed, but in the book, I've got a quite a good summary of everything I have tested and recommend if you're dealing with money. For money, you need, let's say, I don't know, uh, 600 pixels per meter, for example, right? And what does that mean? There is a formula and say, if you put your camera two meters above and you put this sensor and you put this lens, you can see money from that distance. 
So then kind of it's guaranteed that you will see it, right? Yet rather than you guessing, I, I see money, but was it like $100 bill or $50 bill? Or you can't clearly see it. With this uh, investigated and proved, you can use that pixel density to do what you want for the project. So it can be, anything can be described with pixel density in that regards. Right. So to paraphrase and summarize that, in my lay terms, lower pixel density is going to look like, if you're an old person like me, a computer game from the 1980s where it was very square and blocky, <laughs> or if you're a young kid, Minecraft, where it's very square and blocky. High pixel density is more like a HD or a Blu-ray video where everything's very clear, very defined, very sharp. Very, very good analogy. Very good analogy. With that, that we've got precisely how much is that exactly, not just vaguely, like what you said is okay, but it's very vague, but exactly that, uh, uh, let's say, analogy can be can be used. Yeah. Right. And so then the key is to figure out what the pixel density needs to be for... D density. The, for if the project. Density. Yeah, the location of the camera, the lighting, the subject that we're trying to view. And this comes back, doesn't it, to a lot of the bad rap that CCTV got in the early days where people would put in systems and then go back and review the footage later on and say, well, that's useless. Exactly. I can't identify anything. Exactly. That's spot on. That is actually the biggest reason why if this is accepted and understood by everybody, that means if you are a consultant, or doesn't have to be consultant, a system integrator, and you've installed and signed off, this is a system that will protect your fences, for example, from somebody jumping through the fence, uh, then you guarantee that you can pick up certain amount of details by positioning such cameras with such a lens. And the point is, pixel density applies to all cameras, all lenses. So everything is basically affecting that. That means you really have to know the camera sensor size, the pixels that you have, the lens focal length, and the distance to the object. Once you know these factors, four factors, uh, you actually can calculate for any camera. So then you don't discredit uh, this brand is no good because it's I don't know what, or this brand is uh, uh, good because it has got such a wonderful picture. Every camera, if you've got all these parameters in head, can be made to produce such a wonderful picture. Of course, there are other things which yeah. with pixel density you cannot define. You cannot define the noise. You cannot define whether the picture is in focus or out of focus because these are the things we assume installers know how to do it proper. And there is no way to, to define that with a formula. It's actually installation part and the sensitivity of the camera in low light, but everything else can be used. Yeah. I've, lo I've lost your video for some reason, John. No, that's all right. Ah, I should ah. be back now. Um, okay. So then my, my next question is, there is an assumption that a, a great many people in the industry make where if manufacturer A has produced a camera for situation B, I just buy that camera and I use it for situation B. Is it the case that when the manufacturer creates the camera, they pair the camera with the best lens for that situation? Or should consultants and installers be looking at, well, that's the camera, but maybe I need to change out the lens depending on what I'm doing? Yeah, well, that's, that's also correct. Uh, Basically, in the past, uh, my old engineering experience tells, and I, I again explain this in the books, uh, in the past, we didn't have so-called varifocal lenses, which are now most common, which means for every different application, even then, even if we didn't know 
the pixel density, the understanding what you cover, defined what focal length you needed for the angle to produce for the size of the system. So um, yes, you can, uh, you can have a particular camera designed to be optimal for let's say picking up people entering through the bank main door, uh, but almost any camera, modern camera can do that. It's just changing, changing the lens to suit the angle of view. And second important thing is also the internal processing of the cameras. Many manufacturers have better than others in terms of processing like wide dynamic range, color balance, noise suppression, uh, compression itself. So these things, unfortunately you cannot have one that does everything and others don't. You actually can do a lot of things with almost all of them uh, it's just you need to know what exactly you need to pay attention to and how to adjust it. And uh, one of the one of the um, let's say discussion and arguments in the books is also, and as you know, uh, I also do testing, camera testing, and so forth. We've got test chart, as people don't know, we've got test chart video labs. Test chart is specifically designed to comply with the standards and so forth. But because of so many tests that we have done, um, what I found out is that. There are so many fantastic cameras, so, so many different brands, but camera as it comes from the manufacturer is usually set as default optimal position, which is okay for most cases, but not always the best for specific case. So in other words, there are so many adjustments in a camera that people can do that a camera that uh, appears okay may completely fail in picking up number plate because the, the exposure of the shutter speed is not set short enough to not have blurry image of passing cars, for example, right? And yet, if you know what is, a, uh, 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 what is making such a blurry picture, you actually can go inside the camera menu and set it up the way you need it. And suddenly that camera will look 10 times better than before. It's the same camera. You just need it to know what to adjust. This is all covered in the book. So I'm actually explaining what people can do. So it's first, Yes, you can say this camera is the best camera for capturing people getting through the main door, but others can do it as well. I mean, others can be advertised as such. Which of the two or three is better? Then you really need to do comparative testing and, and analysis because then suddenly once you have something good and the other is, ah, oh, looks the same, then for you to say, well, the other one is not as good you have to find where, like could be the noise, could be the color reproduction. So every time you can do uh, one is better than the others, but I would say majority, not all, but majority of modern cameras are very good indeed. You just need to know what else they can do and how they can be optimized because there are too many variables that when they come default from the factory are not necessarily optimally set for every particular difficult situation in a, in a project. A normal view would be probably most of them will be okay, even though you can see difference between different ones. But um, there's the technology is so advanced that it's very hard to find the difference between, you know, it's like finding a difference between uh, uh, Firefox browser and Safari and Edge and they all do the same thing, slightly different method, yeah? Do you think so this, this is, is where of... the artificial intelligence component though in a lot of things is going to be coming to the fore insofar as 
you've said, you know, really in order to get the most out of the camera, you need to have a basic understanding of the exposure triangle, which is ISO versus shutter speed or shutter angle and aperture. But if we've got a good intelligence or analytics-based system, um, you know, I might be able to go in and when I'm setting up the camera, that AI system might say, what time of day or night are you going to be using this camera? How far is it going to be from the subject? What are you trying to view? How quickly is it going to be moving? And then it sets all of that for you. Is that where you think it's going? Sure, that, that is definitely possible. Um, although I guess that would be, for me, uh, science fiction at this stage. Like yeah. I would like to see something that happening. But you're absolutely right with the exception when you mentioned ISO, in CCTV, people don't yep. know what ISO is. You know it because you do with video graphics, yeah? Yep. So it's embedded and it's hidden and you don't really have control of it. However, the rest of it, as you said, exposure, F uh, shutter speed, electronic exposure, f-stop, uh, focal length, all these will determine the quality that you will get. And of course, don't forget compression. Yep. We have big differences in compression inside the camera. So you have to choose optimum. You don't want to go overboard, too much bandwidth, but at the same time, you want as good pictures as possible. Once you combine all these things, then you kind of know what is the optimum for that particular set of cameras. And uh, really, there is not a single answer for everything, as long as you know what are the parameters that you have in there. It's like, do I buy, let's say I'm a photographer, you're a photographer, do I buy now Sony Alpha 7 this or Canon EOS came up with this or Nikon came up with, so more or less all of them can do as long as you know how to use it and what to set and what they do. The same is for us in CCTV. Yes, we are not, once you install, you forget about the system, you hand over to the customer, so kind of not your problem, but really if I'm a professional, I would install that camera with the maximum view for for what the customer wants and obviously defined as per either the standards or my testing or recommendation you'll say okay i guarantee you that if you have a person getting through that gate you will recognize who that person is because i know the the position of the camera the angles of you the light levels the exposure and so forth so um maybe one day there will be as you said something like that to set the camera automatically and optimize it itself right but one thing that brings me to, to highlight, which is important, no matter how clever the programmers are, that there are many clever programmers out there that, that I, I'm really impressed with what I see is possible today with video analytics. But almost none of them that I have come across and spoke, many of them, almost none of them understands the video itself as such. They just get video from somewhere without even asking the angle of coverage, the pixel density, they have absolutely no idea of pixel densities and things like that. So where I'm coming from is I'm saying, look guys, we are in this industry as experts in video, camera, positioning, angles, pixel density. If you understand or listen to us to give you the best picture details, then your analytics will get better. So in other words, instead of having accuracy of 80, 85%, Suddenly, if you do it this way, it may become 90, 95%, okay? And that's, I think, very important to understand that even programmers or even IT people using AI, they need to understand and give credit to where everything starts from, and that is the camera. And the camera is not just the camera model brand name, but actually all these variables which define details of the object that you see, which includes everything I mentioned contained in pixel density without the low light illumination thing, right? Yeah. So all this, once it's understood, 
you know that you can give the best picture video stream to the analytics. And then uh, if analytics doesn't work, then maybe it's in the algorithm that doesn't do properly what it's supposed to do. And, and mind you, uh, I have in, been involved myself in some uh, AI uh, research and still do with some people. And I know what they do in the programming because I have done the same thing to learn how to do it. You get millions of video clips from the internet. Yep. And if you use millions of clips from the internet, they are all more or less the same. And uh, when they are the same, you've got the same inclination towards false alarms or false detection because they all used the same videos of cats and dogs or people jumping the fence and whatever. You need, or we as an industry, need to create our own data set. That's the important thing with Oli we wanted to bring to the attention to all people involved in this AI. If we are smart enough, we actually will not just surrender our recording in the cloud and Amazon owns it or whoever, but actually we should be able to hold uh, a number of these video data sets, clips that contain important information can be used for teaching later on yeah. or during that time. And if you do that, then it's a realistic uh, set of rules that your algorithm will optimize it. Again, it may not come to 100%, but I'm happy if it comes to 98 rather than uh, 88 or 85 or less. Vlado, we are, we are pretty much at the end of our time, but if people want to get hold of your new book, where do they find you? Um, uh, what I did is I uh, gave, I sold all my uh, publishing rights for English language to ASIO. So ASIO uh, website will uh, give them the prices and opportunity to order either physically printed copy or electronic copy. Um, Currently, the, the book is undergoing final proofreading. Uh, and I think it will be available probably by the middle of this month. So another next week or two. Uh, and everything is through ASIO. So ASIO has the rights for all of this internationally for English language. Fantastic. And I suggest that they approach ASIO, go on their website and search, and then pre-order one. And certainly if, uh, if ASIO invites me to sign copies i can autograph copies if somebody wants autograph copy because a lot of people have asked for that already yeah well ladies and gentlemen you have it there from vlado himself if you want a copy of his new book you can look for that mid-july at www.asial.com.au vlado thank you very much for your time it's been a pleasure talking to you thank you john always a pleasure to talk to you always interesting all thank right. you and all the best have a good day and ladies and gentlemen, don't forget, if you've enjoyed this podcast, there are plenty more like this one in the ASIO Security Insider series. You can find them on uh, Apple iTunes, Spotify, Blurberry, uh, the Google Play Store, and all the other great places that you can find amazing podcasts. And we look forward to catching you on the next episode. Have a great day. Security is proud to be a supporter of ASIO's podcast series. With insightful presenters and expansive subjects, the podcast series is a must if you want to keep at the forefront of the industry. Security. Security workforce management software reimagined.